Welcome colleagues and podcast listeners to this edition of the RPA's podcast on the Guide to Nephrology Practice. Today, we have the opportunity to explore coding and billing, which, you know, I realize many of us have a love-hate relationship with this subject, as do I many times. Sometimes it feels even as though our H&Ps and our SOAP notes have really devolved from tools for communicating with our colleagues into an endless list of codes that nobody ever could try to understand. And you know, I get it. My name is Jeff Gillian, and I'm a nephrologist from Denver, Colorado. I too share your love-hate relationship with ICD-10 and CPT codes. However, I determined, I think very early in my career, that there's a significant value in understanding this stuff and making it work for me, and importantly, making it work for patient care. So today, I want to spend a little bit of time talking about the importance of understanding the basics of coding and billing, not because we want to line our pockets, but because we, as physicians, we need to get this stuff right. We need to get paid appropriately for the work that we do every hour of every day for our patients. And and really, aside from the financial aspects of accurate medical coding and billing, this type of documentation, I believe, really allows for comparison of outcomes between physicians, comparison of outcomes between patient populations. So for better or for worse, we have entered a world of transparency, of provider choice, of narrowed payer networks, and of online reputation. I believe proper coding allows for comparison of medical complexity, allows for comparison of comorbidities, and allows for a better understanding of decision-making. So let me explain further. Let's assume that two physicians practice in the same community. One of those physicians agrees to see a population of patients that is more medically complex with a larger set of comorbidities. We can obviously assume that this population of patients might have a greater healthcare utilization. They might have higher costs, they might even have a higher risk of mortality. If that physician hasn't done a good job of properly capturing that level of illness in their ICD-10 codes, then it could appear that that physician just hasn't done a good job caring for his or her patients. So between getting paid appropriately for the work that we do and getting credit for the complexity of the patient populations that we serve, I believe very strongly that understanding and then implementing Proper coding and billing is really crucial, and it's a very important part of our professional careers. It also, I think, is important to point out that all of this comes back to documentation, really good documentation. We document to protect ourselves and to share our thoughts with our colleagues and our referring physicians and other specialists. And good documentation, I believe, really captures the nuances required to code and to bill properly and to communicate with all of our colleagues. Let's change gears for a minute. The International Classification of Disease and Related Health Problems, or you know ICD for short, is a set of codes that define medical conditions. The idea of statistical classification of medical entities is really an idea that's gone back several centuries. And it began in earnest with the international list of the cause of death in the late 1800s. And then, as many of us are familiar with, ICD-9, or the ninth revision of the International Classification of Diseases, is something that the United States relied upon for medical coding and medical billing uh, all the way up until 2015. Of course, I think it's important to point out that ICD-9 was actually originally adopted by the World Health Organization back in 1975. 
So when the United States transitioned from ICD-9 to ICD-10-CM, which we'll talk about in a minute, ICD-9 at that point was actually 40 years old. ICD was in general something that was designed by the World Health Organization as a means of classifying diseases to map health issues for epidemiologic purposes. Of course, the United States and many other countries have adapted the international classification of diseases and taken it to the next level to allow it to be a part of the full medical coding and medical billing process. So let's move on to ICD-10. ICD-10 was published originally by the World Health Organization in 1992. And then subsequently various forms have been adopted by countries over the past two decades for classification purposes. In October of 2015, the United States transitioned to a version of ICD-10 called ICD-10-CM, or clinical modification. And while ICD-10 has 68,000 separate codes, and of course, because of this, it has uh, appropriately suffered at the hands of all the jokes about its absurdity, it's actually a very well-organized set of codes. Every single code starts with a letter, followed by two digits. The letter defines the body system, and then those first several digits together define the medical condition. So N18, for example, is chronic kidney disease. N17 is acute kidney injury. I10 is hypertension. And then of course, these things can be subclassified even further so that they can gain in specificity. Those first three digits are then followed by one or two more digits, as I mentioned previously, to further describe the medical entity. So going back to the N18 condition I mentioned a moment ago, which is CKD or chronic kidney disease, the fourth digit then subcategorizes CKD into its specific stage. N18.4, for instance, is CKD stage four, while N18.5 is, by comparison, CKD stage five. ICD-10 then goes a step further, and it often requires the etiology of a given disease or condition to be coded actually before the condition itself. So a patient that we might see with diabetic nephropathy from type two diabetes, ultimately leading to CKD stage four, would be coded appropriately as E11.21, which is diabetes mellitus type 2 with nephropathy, followed by N18.4, the code for, as I mentioned before, CKD stage 4. This is really a fundamental requirement of the ICD-10 process, and it's paramount to having your bills paid in a timely fashion. It's also, I think, very, very important when our epidemiology colleagues set forth to really understand the etiologies and the consequences of a number of diseases. So for the first year that ICD-10 was in place, so from October of 2015 to October of 2016, the payers were, were very lax in the requirement of necessitating etiology followed by consequence or followed by the condition. They were lax in this uh, coding order. However, now that the transition period has ended, physicians really should begin to expect that their bills that are not appropriately containing an etiology code could be returned without payment or at least without payment in a timely fashion. There's also a subset 
or a subsection of ICD-10 that I think is really underutilized, especially for nephrologists and other physicians that take care of complex patients. But it's critical to accurately demonstrating the medical complexity of these patients. These are known as the Z codes. The Z section, or the last section in ICD-10-CM, is designated for, quote, factors influencing health status, end quote. That's how it's said uh, within the book. These are the codes that support our documentation of conditions that truly affect how we treat these patients and why they might not fare as well as other patients with similar medical conditions. So Z codes include everything from uh, a BMI status, uh, the Z68.2s and the subsets ultimately define what BMI a patient has, all the way to the use of immunosuppression, Z72.24, to things like non-compliance with medications or even non-compliance with dialysis, which is Z79.15. I don't mean for us to memorize all of these Z codes, but it's important to understand how these codes help differentiate patients in such a way that we might accurately predict that one patient, just by seeing what they look like on paper with these codes, that one patient is more complex more difficult to treat than a similar patient with the same disease state, thereby impacting not only the epidemiology when it comes to looking at the science, but comparing two physicians that might be taking care of a similar class of patients. All right, let's change gears once again and move on to the CPT codes. ICD-10 codes define the diagnosis and they are used ultimately to support the CPT codes. CPT stands for the Current Procedural Technology, and these are the codes that translate directly into payments. Each CPT code is assigned an RVU, or a relative value unit. RVUs are then multiplied by a dollar amount, which is known as the conversion factor, at least within Medicare terms or CMS terms, and these equate to the work a physician performs and turns it into a payment amount for that work. There are six categories of CPT codes. There's anesthesia codes, surgery codes, radiology codes, pathology codes, medicine codes, and E&M, or evaluation and management codes. And for nephrology, we definitely use a lot of the E&M codes. This category, I think, is really crucially important to those of us caring for patients in the office, those of us caring for patients in the hospital, and then ultimately in other clinic settings as well. So E&M codes describe office visits, as I mentioned, hospital admissions, observation visits, and a number of other types of care that we as nephrologists provide. In many of these cases, we also have to differentiate a new patient from a returning patient. And as a reminder, a new patient in the office setting is any patient you have not seen or your partners or somebody from your medical group have not seen in the past three years. So if you saw somebody in the hospital two and a half years ago and now they come to your office, they are not considered a new patient. On the other hand, if you had a patient that you were seeing for CKD stage three several years ago and they fell out of the system or they moved or they were cared for by another specialist or by their primary care physician, and now they return to you three and a half years later, perhaps with advancing CKD, they are now considered a new patient. Keep in mind that to justify any given visit level for CPT, such as a level four visit or a level five visit in your office or a high level visit in the hospital, you must prove medical necessity. And this really goes back to ICD-10. 
Is the patient in front of you complex enough to justify the right amount of documentation to then justify the high-level CPT code? This is really paramount and important for understanding so that if you're ever audited, it does not come back to harm you in terms of being found as somebody who has been overcoding or overbilling. So as I mentioned, this requires an appropriate depth of documentation in the assessment and plan, and you must meet the appropriate thresholds in the history and in the physical exam portions of the note. For new patients, you have to adequately address all three elements. You gotta hit the history, the physical, and the assessment and plan, and the assessment and plan, when done appropriately, justifies medical necessity. For returning patients, you only have to adequately hit two of the three elements. So either the elements of history or physical exam portions, but then again, also still addressing medical necessity in the assessment and plan. Consultation codes, which previously were allowed and were separate from new patient visits, are no longer accepted by CMS and really no longer accepted by most commercial providers. So the idea of these special consultation codes have really fallen by the wayside. One more important note about CPT codes, occasionally they require a modifier, which follows those uh, five digits of the CPT. Modifiers give extra information about the treatment of, uh, or a procedure. Modifier dash 25, for example, denotes a significant service performed outside of the ENM on the same day. And there's several modifiers. There's modifiers for anesthesia and for surgical services, some that are used for interventional nephrology procedures. And I don't think it's necessary for every physician to really know all the modifiers, but it is important for us to understand that they exist and to discuss them with our team that does our billing to ensure that they bill accurately and that those bills reflect all of the work that we do. Really, having a fundamental understanding of this helps minimize delays in payments and really minimize outright denials of payment. So all of these CPT codes, how do they translate into payments? So each CPT code, as I mentioned previously, is assigned an RVU, a relative value unit. For Medicare and Medicaid, and of course for many of the commercial payers, these RVUs are multiplied by a dollar amount and that translates into a payment. For Medicare, the dollar amount is called the conversion factor and the specific amount for that conversion factor is really determined annually for the next year. In 2017, that conversion factor will be approximately $35.89 and that's up about nine cents from the 2016 amount. That means, in essence, every single RVU is worth just a little less than $36. So let's, let's translate that into the real world. Let's take a look at a level four follow-up office visit for a patient with Medicare. In that case, the CPT code would be 99214, which is a very common code for a routine CKD visit. It's given a value of just a little bit above three RVUs or three relative value units. Therefore, in most of the country, the payment would be around $108. Three RVUs times approximately $36, and it turns out to be 108. I say around because there's actually some geographic variability that goes into the ultimate RVU value, and that compensates for differences in the cost of delivering care around the country. 
Additionally, I think it's probably important to understand that the amount I just mentioned is what's called the non-facility fee, meaning it applies to services rendered outside of a hospital or a similar facility where some other entity is paying for much of the overhead. The same level four visit that I just mentioned, if it was provided in a hospital outpatient facility or a hospital outpatient clinic, would net the physician only $79. And similarly, it's important to understand that a nurse practitioner or a physician assistant providing that same level of service to a Medicare beneficiary would receive only 85% of those overall fees. Medical specialties working with the AMA meet three times a year to review and update the RVU fee schedule. CMS then has the ability to accept the updated values or revalue certain procedures and these visits and do that independently. And several items are accounted for in each RVU. They include work that's required to perform the service, the skill level that goes into that work, the practice expense associated with that procedure or visit, and the amount of liability insurance along with geographic variation required to take care of that particular patient. All of these items make up the final RVU. And where do specialties, the AMA and CMS, get that specific information? Well, they get that in each of its component forms from us as physicians. Every time it comes time to revalue a code, specialty societies like the RPA put out a survey to their members and ask for details along these lines. And while these surveys are long and tedious, they are tremendously impactful in determining the final RVU level for every CPT code. So that there is my plug for any time you get a survey to not ignore it, but to spend time accurately thinking about it and accurately reflecting what it takes to take care of a patient in your office or in your hospital with these entities. For now, I think it's wise for us to focus on a few special coding points specific to nephrology. And so in no particular order, I wanna to touch on some inpatient topics, a couple of outpatient dialysis points, and a couple of office nuances that are really important, I think, for the delivery of nephrology care. Let's start in the inpatient world. When a visiting patient on dialysis comes to the hospital, you could bill a 90935, an acute dialysis visit, if you see that patient during the dialysis procedure itself and of course, if you document appropriately. The relative value units tied to a 90935 are very similar to the RVUs or relative value units of a middle-level hospital follow-up visit, a 99232. Don't get confused with all the numbers, just understand that you cannot bill both of these entities on the same day. You can't see the patient in the morning on your rounds while they're in their bed, do a 99232 mid-level follow-up hospital visit, then see them later that afternoon in the dialysis suite of the hospital while on dialysis and bill a 90935. It's one or the other. If a patient, however, is very, very ill, you then have a couple of options. The first is to visit the patient twice during dialysis procedure. So for example, you see the patient and they're a half hour in and they're a little bit hypotensive, their temperature is up, you make some recommendations on that patient, for example, to decrease the ultrafiltration rate or maybe even change the temperature on the machine or provide medications or any number of other medically necessary entities. 
you then return an hour or two hours later to reevaluate that same patient on dialysis because of medical necessity. When you're now visiting twice, assuming that you document appropriately, rather than coding a 90935, a single visit on dialysis in the hospital, you could code a 90937. And just so you know, in that case, the reimbursement jumps approximately 50% from around $73 for seeing the patient once on dialysis to $105. Simply put, this is a means of getting paid appropriately for doing the work that we're doing. It is not a means for seeing every single patient twice on dialysis. That would not be justified by medical necessity. Similarly, when you're visiting a patient on CRRT once, you would bill a 90945, but if you appropriately rounded on that patient twice during the same day, you could bill a 90947 instead of the 45, and the reimbursement jumps in a similar fashion, about 50% higher. Additionally, it's important to understand that on the very first day that you see a new patient in the hospital, there are occasions when you can bill both the new patient visit and also bill for the dialysis procedure. Subsequently, as I mentioned, you can't bill for a routine follow-up visit and the dialysis procedure at the same time. You'll definitely wanna check with local rules on this as reimbursement can vary around the country, but it's important to understand that on the first day that you do a new patient visit, you can also bill a procedural code. Sometimes, however, I would say that a patient's status can change during the day. While you might see a stable patient during dialysis in the morning, any number of scenarios might dictate a revisit in the afternoon for a new issue. And if the scenario warrants, physicians can actually bill critical care time, 99291 for the first 30 minutes to 74 minutes at the bedside taking care of a patient who's critically ill, or 99292, which accounts for every subsequent 30-minute visits in increments. And while it's the beyond the scope of today's discussion to get into all the details, I think it's wise to say that none of these scenarios where a physician ultimately bills for more than one visit a day should be abused as they are highly scrutinized by payers, but they are there to ensure that we as nephrologists get paid appropriately for the work that we do. In the outpatient dialysis world, ICD-10 can get a bit tricky. At the minimum, I think it's worth documenting on an ESRD patient both N18.6, which corresponds to stage six CKD or ESRD uh, status, and Z99.2, that's the corresponding Z code, which delineates dependence on renal dialysis. In addition to those two codes, it's worth coding the etiology of ESRD if you know it. By virtue, as I mentioned, of the ICD-10 uh, CM coding regulations, that etiology code, such as uh, I1, uh, excuse me, I12.0, which is hypertensive nephropathy with ESRD, should be coded first because etiology comes before the sequelae. Switching now on CPT to the outpatient codes, let's talk about the MCP, the monthly capitation rate. This family of codes, 90960 for four visits in a month or 90961 for two to three visits in a month, et cetera, are in essence capitated codes covering the entire month of care. Even if a dialysis patient is seen in the hospital under observation status, 
that visit by the nephrologist is covered by the MCP. Occasionally, a nephrologist might want to see their dialysis patient in the office. If the office visit is clearly documented as being for the care of something entirely outside of the ESRD realm, say a pneumonia evaluation or something like that, the physician actually can bill for that office visit separate from the MCP. It would, of course, require the proper two-digit modifier, as I mentioned earlier. However, it's really important to understand that if the visit in the office is related to ESRD or a renal issue, then the visit is considered to be part of that capitated MCP code and should not be billed separately. Notably, as long as a physician sees the patient once a month, documents a comprehensive note, then the NP, the nurse practitioner, or the physician assistant can see the patient the remainder of times on dialysis and still be billed at the higher physician level rather than the typical 85% rate that a nurse practitioner or a PA often receives from CMS. Of course, as I mentioned, this applies only to Medicare patients. Private payers have their own regulations and it's important to know the rules for the patients that you're taking care of in your geography. Home dialysis codes, I think, are relatively straightforward, and a month's worth of home hemodialysis or peritoneal dialysis is reimbursed at a rate really similar to the two monthly visits for an in-center dialysis patient. Unlike in-center patients, however, there is a code to bill for the home dialysis training. 90989 is really worth examining, as in many cases, it can reimburse very fairly for the work that most of us are doing routinely anyway. Since the MCP codes for both in-center and home dialysis account for coordination of care and transition of care, it is not possible at this time to bill those transition of care codes, 99495, 99496, during the month when you bill an MCP code. So it's okay to use those if done appropriately for our patients that we see in the office with chronic kidney disease, but not okay at this point to use those for our ESRD patients. Everything though that I said needs to be taken with a little bit of a grain of salt. There are regions in the country that are covered by what's called MACs, Medicare Administrative Contractors. And while it's beyond the scope of this talk to get into the details of the MACs, suffice it to say that these MACs serve as intermediaries and they often have their own variations on coding and billing regulations. It's worth understanding the specific nuances in your region and it's worth getting involved with these MACs because oftentimes they lack specific subspecialty intervention or knowledge that we as nephrologists practicing in the community can actually provide them to make the process run more smoothly. Finally, let me end with a couple thoughts about the consequences of miscoding or billing errors. In many cases, errors are just that. They're mistakes. We all make them. They may lead to denial of payments or at the very least a prolonged delay in payment and significant paperwork for your office. And it's beyond the scope of, of our podcast today to get into the processes that CMS and payers have used to identify these errors, but it's worth understanding that payers have lists of what are called medically unlikely edits. These are published codes that should not be submitted together, codes that would not be appropriate for a given gender, codes that are uh, susceptible to error, and things like that. Since these are published, it's worth having your office staff review them periodically, especially if you're noticing a greater than average delay in reimbursement. Beyond general errors, of course, is fraud and abuse. At the minimum, fraud can lead to censure by commercial carriers and loss of the ability to participate in CMS. 
At its worst, of course, fraud can lead to criminal investigations by the Office of the Inspector General or other regulatory authorities and can lead to a suspension of your medical license, severe steep fines, and obviously jail time. If you did it, document it for your own protection. If you didn't do it, don't document it. It's not worth the risk. And with that, I will bid you farewell. It is my sincere desire to make medical billing and coding palatable, and dare I say it, even enjoyable. As physicians, we work hard. We deserve to understand the rules and use them appropriately to receive the reimbursement that we have earned. This allows us to reinvest in our medical groups, improve patients' access to care, hire the best and brightest employees, repay our medical school loans, and build sustainable practices that benefit our patients, our employees, and our communities. Have a good day. Thank you for listening to the RPA podcast. This is only one of the topics addressed in greater detail in RPA's Renal Physician's Guide to Nephrology Practice. For more information on this and other topics that will help you with efficiently managing your nephrology practice, download a copy of the RPA Guide from the RPA Store at www.renalmd.org. Contact the RPA office at 301-468-3515 with any questions.